welcome to Empathetic Witness, and I'm your host, Angelina Pratt, and I would like to get right into this interview with Paul. And Paul, let's start by giving us a little story about who you are and what kind of big things you are up to in your life. So a bit about my journey. Okay. Mm -hmm. So where do we start? Well, I suppose a a big part of my journey for a long time was I I fell into uh, addiction, particularly Mm. alcohol addiction. And I, you know, I I went to my first rehab when I was 20. And I tried lots of different things to, to end my addiction. Until I eventually got sober at a, a temple here in Thailand, or I stopped drinking at a temple here in Thailand. And what I what I realized about that journey and about why it, you know, why there was so much struggle involved in it was that I was actually looking for something. And so I see my my turning to alcohol as actually an attempt to get something. That alcohol made me feel a particular way. And in the beginning, I liked the way it made me feel. That was the uh, attraction for me. And I didn't know any better way to, you know, feel that way, at least, you know, reliably. I had, as a teenager, I had come across stuff like meditation. I got involved in martial arts and I kind of, I I got a sense that there was something there in meditation. And there were times in meditation where I kind of, I found something, but it just wasn't as easy to achieve as alcohol. So, but but eventually what happened was I, I was able to, able to realize that, I was searching for something. And what I really needed to do was find that thing I was searching for. And then it would be so much easier to leave alcohol behind. So my alcohol addiction ended finally when I was when I found the thing I was looking for. And the thing I was looking for is what a lot of people might refer to as peace or stillness. And I can go into lots more kind of detail about it, depending on your question. But that's kind of the overview. Yes, I had to had to give an overview, Angelina. Yeah, no, I I get it. I and I and I really, you know, I do love your story because I've been following your story for a number of years now. I even bought your book way back when. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and you know what I'm really really um, interested in. You know, I'm I'm also you know a meditator. I've been meditating since you know, since university. So, you know, years, you know, decades, actually. And I find that meditation, without really seeking, you find because for me, meditation is going within myself and being comfortable with who I am. And in doing that, you find yourself. So I and I really get what you said, Angelina. Yeah. So I get what you're saying in terms of you know, you were seeking something. And usually, I mean, I've been studying trauma for a number of years now. And one of the people that I follow in the area of trauma is Dr. Gabor Mate. And he is a physician in Canada. In Yeah, I'm very aware of him. Oh, you're aware of him. Yeah. And so he talks about... Oh, of course. About, well, he, he, wrote, he wrote that book in the realm of the hungry ghost, didn't he? Yes, exactly. And that's kind of like Buddhist, right? You know... Sure, the, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the hungry ghost always seeking something. Um, he describes exactly. addictions as, you know, something that is short-term gain with long-term negative consequences that you just can't get out of. And... Um, I'm not sure in terms of your own addictions, Paul, you know, it sounds to me like you started in your 20s and you were early teens, actually. Oh, in your teens. Okay. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) So I was an early starter. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's that's almost around, you know, the time when in early adolescence and early teens, 
we're searching, right? Because our mind is thinking. Well, that's what it was. And I had a lot of pain in my life at that time. You know, my, my, my parents went through this kind of very messy breakup. Mm. And I was looking for something to quickly fix that. Um, because I was just so overwhelmed by the situation. So, yes, yeah, seeking seeking some sort of kind of comfort. And there was also lots of other, you know, discomfort, the, the discomfort of being a teenager. And, you know, I found it very difficult to, 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 to just feel comfortable around other people. I found it very difficult. I was really getting into girls at that stage, and I found it really difficult to be comfortable around girls. And then suddenly I found this magic juice that made me, that seemed to kind of fix all of that. Yeah. Because it was kind of obvious. So as I said, I kind of found meditation as a teenager as well. But I mean, meditation didn't, I, I didn't see how that could work with girl, like with getting girls. Like I was meant to meditate when I was with them or something. Yeah. That it's like when I wasn't meditating, I was, I was very uncomfortable in my own skin. Yes. Um. So something you, you so something you said there um, a while ago when, when you were kind of you were applying a minute ago about meditation. Yeah, one of the, one of the kind of mistakes you could say are you know part of my journey in the wrong direction with meditation for a long time was seeking, was trying to seek something, trying to kind of seek some kind of transcendental state, almost like kind of uh, another kind of drug, almost somehow escaping reality. And it wasn't until I just like started to completely let go to let go of that, to kind of let go of meditation that I really started to, to make progress. And I've kind of realized that that's actually what this is, really, for me anyway, this journey of complete letting go. And the more I kind of let go, the more peace I found. And then I realized that it was that peace that I was actually looking for from the beginning. Yeah, I get that. Well, you know, and I think a lot of people, you know, when you when you say meditation, people have different ideas about what that means. Sure. And many people I've talked to that, you know, say, well, I just can't meditate, you know, because my mind keeps thinking and it's, you know, scooting yes. off here and there and everywhere. And, and, you know, I, I taught meditation at the Buddhist temple close to where I live. And the whole idea about meditation is not to quiet your, your mind not to stop your no. thinking it's just to notice it you know so because we are all going to think it's like trying to stop breathing you can't stop breathing sure. because, and it's yeah. and this is what i tell people you know that that you know because I, I teach meditation here as well you know, here in thailand and this is kind of a very important thing that, that see what we're trying to do well at least what i'm trying to do you know with meditation is to allow people to see how what they're experiencing is not the same as how they as what they think they're experiencing to kind of see that that difference between what their mind is telling them and what they're actually experiencing and part of that is is to is to start to better understand thinking and to for people to start to see that they're not thinking what they're thinking because they're choosing to think it they're thinking what they're thinking because they can't stop it that it's just their mind like what like like chatting and yes. when, when we see the, the thinking that way, it's not that we need to stop it. It's just that we become less interested in it. We become uh, kind of disillusioned with it. And we kind of understand that a lot of the thinking actually isn't really serving us. And it's, it's, it's not there out of our choice. It's, it's, it, a lot of thinking can be just basically intrusive. The same way, you know, especially for people who end up in rehab. Yeah. It can be kind of to trying to get away from the thinking that's often driving the addiction. That's That's the that's the rabbit hole they go down, right? Because I mean, and one sure. thing about me, Paul, you might not know is I have something called aphantasia. And really oh, what no. that is, is that I cannot voluntarily form images in my mind. So if, if you say to me, oh, well. imagine a red ball on a table, I can't do that. I can't, I can't imagine that. Like I can't see the picture, which I think is kind of a gift because I also don't hear voices in my head. And, and I just discovered this just, you know, a couple of years ago, this, this thing that I have. And it's quite interesting because I don't have voices in my head. And I like with my husband, he actually sometimes he'll, you know, he'll be kind of humming along, but he hears 
musical scores in his head. Like he hears music in yeah. his head, right? You know, and so he's kind of humming along to the tune. You're of, the complete opposite. Yeah, I'm the opposite. There's nothing in my head. <laughs> which is, I mean, I think that's that's very interesting because I mean, this is something I used to uh, I, I used to think a lot about actually, <laughs> and I I always kind of wonder because I I mean I associate thinking, yeah, with in our dialogue, but of course it, it's not in our dialogue for for everybody. I, I used to kind of think about someone like like Helen Keller, yes, who you know was blind and deaf, and I was kind of like, could she did she have an inner life? And of course she has to have an inner life. Everyone has an inner life. Well, or appears to, I can say, appears to have an inner life, but it doesn't have to be verbal. Yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's quite, quite strange because, I mean, we have this, you know, so some people will have this dialogue. Like often when I'm reading self-help books, they'll say, you know, Stop saying these negative things to yourself. You know, you're worthy and, you know, have some positive affirmations. And, but I don't tell myself things. Like I don't have an inner dialogue that says, oh, I'm too slow at this. I'm not good enough at this. And I think that's part of the aphantasia. I don't know. I mean, that seems like, that does seem like an advantage to me. Yeah, um, exactly. I know. And I, that's the, and that's how I'm choosing to look at it. That it is sure. an advantage because I I'm not encumbered by these voices in my head or thoughts that, you know, are bringing me down. Yeah. And it's quite I I, I often think of you know of, of the actual voice is that it, it, it's like the words are just basically a like a symbol for something that's happening at maybe at a kind of much deeper level. And so maybe, look, you ever heard of the, 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 the teacher Krishnamurti? Yes. The Indian teacher Krishnamurti. Yeah. And he used to talk about this. So, you know, he would say that for, cog- like, say, cognition can happen without us hardly being aware of it, and in your case, not being aware of it. But he was saying that it's kind of similar to physical discomfort in that, when we're anxious, we become much more aware of physical discomfort. And that can make the physical discomfort, like little, there's always kind of aches and pains in our body. But if you're kind of suddenly aware of that, it can seem like your body's getting a lot of pain. And he was suggesting with people who do have a problem with overthinking is that they're just becoming much more aware of cognition. That it's something that can go on without us being aware of it. Like obviously, that the body has to, the, 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 the mind has to kind of operate and do certain things, but that can all happen without us being aware of it. But he was kind of suggesting that one of the, the kind of the, the things about becoming anxious is you become much more aware of that, and it, we become aware of it for a lot of us as a voice in our head. That's kind of it's it's almost like we could say it as a part of our brain, and its job is to look out for potential problems. And that can actually happen without us being hardly aware of it. But if we're stressed or whatever, we can become much more aware of that department and we're kind of listening in and what it's saying about all these potential dangers. And that's kind of freaking us out. And we can do do, do things like try to stop it telling us. But of course, the only reason it's not really telling us is just that we're more aware of it. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, but when people you know have self esteem issues and maybe yeah. you may have had you know some issues like that because oh absolutely yeah cuz if you were using alcohol to kind of escape from from a certain reality you were experiencing you would have had that kind of dialogue going around you know you and you're oh, trying constantly, to yes yeah and so Meditation in that case would be would be harder to achieve, I would think, because it, you have it, to. It, it was, and that's why I turned. I mean, that's why I, I I would turn to alcohol. I mean, when I started meditating as a teenager, and sometimes I got lucky, mm. uh, you know, and that I and entered these kind of very you know pleasant states that you know that later on it became a lot more difficult to get into. But then when a lot more, you know, the teenage years really kicked in and a lot of stuff started going wrong, 
you know, that, that, that thinking did actually ramp up. And yeah, you know, meditating became less viable to me than going and, and drinking some beer or, you know, drink or whatever. That that seemed to be much more better at calming things down and making me feel good. Yeah. And so, so when, so what got you first interested, like how did, were you introduced to meditation? So as a, as a, as a, you know, I suppose about 12 or 13, I started doing martial arts and I got involved with Kung Fu. Yes. And this is like back in, I don't know if you you remember the, the, the eighties when Kung Fu was quite a big thing, you know, we had the Kung Fu TV show and oh, David Carradine. David Carradine, yeah, and it was all very much about like meditating and Buddhism. So I got really into Buddhism and Taoism. I, I was I was brought up as a as a Catholic, mm. and uh, in Ireland. And as a, when I was very young, you know, before my, I, I was quite into it. I was I was very kind of I, felt I was probably quite religious, and I was, like, became an altar boy and all that kind of stuff. But to, but by the time I, I'd reached my teenage years, a lot of doubt started to arise about you know about that and so I was kind of very open to replacement like and, and that's why I became very interested in Taoism and Buddhism and so I kind of started with that and I had some I suppose early um it seems like I, I in the beginning meditation I just talked to it I just I just kind of realized there was something to it I, I could never as a teenager I wasn't able to quite make it work but I could I could see there was something to it that there was something in it so Throughout my drinking years, I always came back to it. You know, anytime I stopped drinking, I would go back to meditation. And then about 21 years ago, I moved here to Thailand. And my idea was to basically to just really devote myself to meditation. And initially, I'd hoped to become a monk. But I would just go on meditation retreats. And in between the meditation retreats, I'd start drinking again. Oh, no. And so it was like this, yo- this yo-yoing between meditation intently and yeah. drinking intensely. Until eventually, I was able to stop that sixteen years ago. So, um, and, and and you know, meditation was this. It was a very important part of my journey. I'm not sure if it has to be the part of everyone's journey to kind of achieve what you know, peace or stillness. But it was very helpful for me, and and mostly to just start to recognize how my thoughts were deceiving me, and my whole understanding about reality was deceiving me. That I. Uh, you know, I, I I believed that I was what I saw was reality, instead rather than my version of reality, and it was my version of reality that was, or my perception that was actually causing all my pain. And I was able to see, you know, and this is what we pass now. Our insight training is to, to, that we we can start to see how 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 unbelievably different our actual experience is to what we think is there. So, you know, we start to see that actually what we're experiencing is has this quality of impermanence that is always constantly changing. It's never the same and it could never be captured in words. Also, we can start to see how everything is happening by itself, that everything, the body takes care of itself, the mind takes care of itself. And this idea of doing it, like at best, all it does is cause issues that really we can we can let go and allow the the world to take care of everything and it's that letting go that allowing that that that, that is peace and 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 that peace the more we turn towards it the, the, the more it reveals itself because that word peace can sound so normal and so common but the actual peace is 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 completely beyond all of that it's it's a, it's astounding yeah do you find that the more you let go, so it's it's almost like res- like letting go, like resisting, yeah, like just letting go, like of resisting, and also letting go of of expectation, right? I think what we often get in trouble with is we have an expectation that something is going to occur, yes. and when that doesn't occur the way we think it should then that causes us to have dukkha or suffering, right? Yes, and absolutely. So I think that right. once you've given up on that and let it go, then you're more free. The way it appeared to me and what happened to me is that the more I was able to stop resisting, 
the more dreamlike this became, the, the less intense it became. And when it kind of when that happened to a certain degree, this started to appear much more like a dream to me, a very, very, very pleasant dream. But I, I realized it was the, the resisting that was making everything seem intense. And that when I stopped resisting, every, instead of everything seeming intense, everything just seemed like a, this incredible miracle. That this could have, life became re-enchanted. That it was this, it was like, and, and this is, you know, I, I, I talk with this a lot because it's, it's a very kind of important thing for me that I, it was like waking up from this incredible delusion that how could I ever have taken life for granted? How could I have not seen how incredible all of this is? It's not that life has suddenly become different. I don't have angels playing harps in my ear at my dad. It's just that this is already astounding. And the idea, and it can't get any more astounding. It can't get any more miraculous. And I used to like be into things like, you know, say, taking drugs like LSD to k- kind of have a better experience. And the whole idea is ridiculous that having having dragons, dragons flying through the air right now would not make this any more spectacular, that it's already spectacular. It's already amazing. The fact that we perceive anything at all is absolutely astounding. Yeah, I really get that. And and also, well, Paul, can you give me more like an example in your life of how this has worked for you. So if you've had a, an issue or, you know, some kind of, cause you're, what I'm hearing is you're talking about flow. So once you're getting into the zone of something, mm. it just, it's effortless. Right. And so it, the sure. flow was there. Can you give That's me an example in real life, how that works for you? Okay, so I'll give you, I, 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 this is something I kind of, I, I wrote about, about about recently. And I was saying, you know, for a long time, I had this fear of death. And it was a big part of my life, this, this fear of death. Uh, it was something as a teenager, I, um, you know, when, I, well, actually, long before I was a teenager, like when I first, I was saying I was about, I don't know, six or seven, when I first became aware of, of that people would die and my family was going to die and I was going to die, it, it very deeply troubled me. And then as a teenager, I came across a suicide and that kind of very deeply troubled me. And, you know, later on, I trained to be a nurse and I, so I became across a very, a lot of debt, a lot of people dying and, and dealing with the fear of death. So it was like debt was really kind of pushed in my face and it was a thing I was very much afraid of. And so there was this long seeking for you know, the answer, you know, what happens when we die? And I couldn't, I, 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 you know, as far as I could see, uh, and, and maybe maybe this is unfair, but, but, but it seemed to me, you know, saying especially in my 20s, that a lot of, you know, ideas people had about what happened when we die you know, appeared to me as wishful thinking, that it was, it was kind of dependent on belief. And I didn't want... I didn't want to be dependent on belief because, you know, for me, beliefs can always be wrong. It's like, because I've, I've believed and I've believed, I've been certain about a lot of things that later turned out to be not true. So I could, I could, I could kind of sense that there was no, um, no answer for me in adopting some beliefs, but that still left me with this kind of issue. What happens when we die? Now, through this process of being able to let go and and of lightning, I started to to see that actually that whole question was based on assumptions that couldn't be proven. That one of the one of the other things that was a big part of my life is that as a as a very young kid, everything seemed very dreamlike to me. And it always bothered me why everyone took life so seriously and why they never questioned that. And every time I brought it up, people would get really uncomfortable and they, you know, they would shut me up. And I, I learned not to ask that kind of question. But but as I as this progressed, it all became more dreamlike again. And I started to realize that actually I don't even know what I am. And that's and that's a part of if you pass that, I don't know what I am, in the sense that I'm assuming I'm this. You know, I'm I'm this this person who who you know is born and is and dies. But when I actually look at my experience, it's more like a dream that comes and goes. And I've even have I've had dreams where I've dreamed that this was a dream. I had a dream where I was 
I was I was talking to my my wife, but she was somebody different. It was still my wife, but she was different and she was younger and I was younger. And I was telling her about this dream I had where I was working in Thailand in, in a rehab teaching mindfulness, which is my life now. And from there, this seemed like the dream. So one, one of the things that that, that, that led to a realization and that that question is kind of what happens when we die. For me now, it's kind of similar to what happens to my dream characters when I wake up. That I that that I can't really differentiate between the two. Sure, this one seems to have a lot of consistency to it, and it, it seems to be regularly there when I wake up. But I I don't know I I, I don't know that. The question what happens when you die even makes any sense. I can't be sure about it. I'm not, I'm not saying that it doesn't, but I just I just I just don't know that. I don't know that it does. And it was that seeing that, you know, that th- those assumptions and, and those assumptions disappearing, the whole question disappeared for me. Yeah, I get so so when you're having a dream, like a real dream. Yeah. Do you sometimes say to yourself, "This is a dream"? Sure, yeah. So, so yeah, like, I felt, like lucid dreaming has been a you know a thing that I did for a little while. Yeah, yeah. And I, I still, I get it. I, I suppose I lucid dream every maybe once every couple of weeks or something. I never. I, I went through a stage of actually trying to actively lucid dream more, but um, it never really worked out. It's just something that happens, and you know, I think it happens when it needs to happen. And, and actually, I don't. I don't. I, I like re- regular dreams just as much now. I like the unexpectedness of regular dreams and, and the craziness of uh, of regular dreams. Do you write your dreams down? I have done. I have done yeah. in, in a, a lot in the past, and now I will if it seems if it seems significant. If it's something that seems to uh, grab me. Yeah, yeah. But I've done. I've done that before. Like if I've had. You know, I used to sleep with a notebook close to me. And then if I had a dream of something and that just felt real, then I would write it down. Really helpful. And I enjoy reading them. I mean, I think it's, I think, I think, unfortunately, hearing other people's dreams can be kind of boring. Yes, exactly, because it's not pertinent, right? And you can't explain it. You can't like see the dream isn't. And that's what I kind of realized as well. The important thing about the dream isn't the story. It's right. like the story comes afterwards. Yes, it's, it's that it's that experience and the richness of that experience that you can never explain to another individual that your you know your sense of it. Yes, but that's like life. Sure, exactly, and 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 and, and exactly. Yeah, and but we've we, we've sacrificed that wonderful dream for our stories yeah and stories are stories are all fine and they're a wonderful part of the human experience but the problem is when we take those two literally yeah so i think that the, 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 a, ma- a major issue we have as human beings is literalism where we forget that our words and our stories and our explanations are only an attempt to make sense of something We've forgotten that, and we've we started to treat those stories as if as if they were real, as if they were concrete. That if as if we could somehow capture the dream in words, and, like, and that's what makes our life impoverished. That's what makes our life where people get so fed up and so lost and so hopeless because that's a very a very stale and dead thing. Well, it's because we're we're looking at at life through a lens like a bias right because we're we're a perception right so our perception creates how we see the world and then we make up a story about that based on our perception so how can we even trust it exactly so it's kind of i actually was thinking about this today it's like we 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 become prisoners of our own our understanding yeah or as the, the the poet and kind of visionary William Blake once said, you know, that it's like these the, the, the mind forge manacles. It's like our our, our thoughts are, are holding our mind prisoner. 
And they are. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. And I think that, and, you know, when we look at addiction and, you know, as Gabor says, you know, our addiction is, comes from a pain, right? So we've got yeah. a pain. So he says, not why the addiction, but where is the pain? Why the pain? So yes. we look at the pain we're experiencing. And of course, we create a story around that, which which makes the pain deeper because each time you tell a story of a hurt or pain, you entrench it deeper into your psyche. So each time, yeah. So each time you tell a story of some kind of pain or trauma, you're re-traumatizing yourself. And it's even with a small thing. This is something you know, I say to my clients, you know, because we we do meditation, you know, sessions in the morning. And I kind of say, imagine somebody gave you a dirty look before you went into the meditation. Like someone like looked at you in a, in a kind of bad way. Yeah. That you're, you're going to spend the next 20 minutes telling yourself how bad that was. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> how, how angry you are. Yeah. And how unfair. Like, wh- why do we need to keep on telling? It's like we're winding ourselves up. It's like we're deliberately trying to make ourselves more and more annoyed. Yes. Of course, people would. Nobody would choose to do that because people will say, "Well, I don't care." But of course, the next twenty minutes prove they, you know, that 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 at least a part of them cares very deeply and cares so much that they have to keep on repeating the same thing over and over again. Yeah, and it's it's in those stories that if we can let those stories go, I mean, because if you're repeating it, you care. Yes. Right. So if you're repeating the stories, some part of you cares that that person gave you a bad, dirty look. Yes. Um, so, so, so one of the things that was very helpful for me and, and this kind of understanding and, 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 and it kind of fits in with, with my understanding of the Buddhist idea of emptiness was this realization that, that there, there's, there's no right way of perceiving that all perception is empty mm. this used to this used to kind of bother me even as a you know as a teenager about buddhism when i first became aware of buddhism i was very i was very uh, enthusiastic about it and and, I, and it really spoke to me but i was also troubled by something and that was the idea of the buddha waking up and the way i was interpreting that so the way i was interpreting it was oh so the buddha realized he was deluded and then he woke up to the truth, to what's like to, to, the, to the reality. And that showed me because I was kind of thinking, well, if you've been deluded and you wake up to something else, what's not to say that it's just a bigger delusion? <laughs> you know, that you could it, could it could be just a more fancier delusion that's more convincing. And it took me a long time to realize that I don't think that's what the Buddha claimed, that the Buddha, he, he, that he, that as far as I can interpret it, he woke up to the fact that all perception is empty. There is no privileged perception. That all, all perception is a form of filtering. And because of that, all perception, like there is no true perception to wake up to. What we wake up to is the fact that all perception is empty. And what that does, it, it, instead of having to find the true perception, which we, we can defend and argue that everyone else has to join us in that we can start to see well our perception is actually endless and the question is no longer about which perception is true is which perception is most valuable and i think this is where you know the the, the buddhist teachings on, on the brahma viharas like developing metta and developing compassion and, and, and sympathetic joy and, and equanimity that that was the perception that he was encouraging people to try out but of course the the number of perceptions are endless And when you when you understand that, see, see, this is what happens with people with with, with 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 drugs, is they'll have what they call normal life, and then they'll take a drug, which could be alcohol, could be any drug, and they get to to depart from that normal life to something that they perceive as better, and then they return to this normal life. Now. For me, what the Buddha was questioning was the nature of that thing we're calling normal life. 
for us to see that that normal life isn't actually real. It's just another way of perceiving. But we're treating it as somehow, it's it's the way we treat it out of habit as if it was somehow truer than another perception that makes it so real for us. It's like, you know, um, say say if somebody is... quite quite a negative person and they realize that and they want to become more successful they may hear of one of these um you know positive positive thinking uh you know approaches like i don't know someone like 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 tony robbins and he sort of so they go on one of these expensive retreats and during that weekend they can feel super super positive they learned they they learn to feel super positive Mm. but for most people, what's going to happen as soon as they go home, they'll just go back to their normal perception because it just seems more real to them. And the, and, and, and it's like it, it, it's like this keep on returning to an old perception. So we need to see through that old perception to see that that's not true, to actually be able to escape it. That as long as we think that that's what's actually real we'll keep on returning to it. And we have to see that it's not real. It's just our habits. In fact, there's about 8 billion different ways of, of normal. That the thing that makes that perception seem so normal to us is just that it's familiar and habitual. And once we start to see that, we can, we can truly escape it. Yeah, it's like people that go on these meditation retreats. And then, you know, when you're in that, that environment everybody's all loving you're eating some good food you're resting you don't have babies crying all over the place and and so you can you can feel that you're focused and you're in balance but then you get home and you know all of a sudden there's children running around you know they're they're wanting your attention and you're getting irritated, right? Yes. So where did all that equanimity go that you had I, while you were? And in that's the thing, you know. Th- th- that's the thing that actually, and, and this is you know one of the things that meditation that you, that we can actually meditate, you know, all the time and not get this. That as long as meditation remains this escape, it may not actually lead us to to what we're looking for. That. Um, that, that meditation, is, it's not about, I used to believe that if I meditated for, you know, this idea of meditating for 10,000 hours, I would, I would awaken. And I, 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 I became very obsessed with that. And, I, you know, for, for years, I was meditating for up to six or seven hours a day. And that went on for years. And uh, I became a bit, a bit unhealthy <laughs> during that time. Yeah. I put on a lot of weight. Um, but I eventually realized that actually you could meditate for your whole life and not necessarily um, it may not provide what you're looking for. Cause it's not, it's, it's, it's not about the quantity of a meditation. It's about using meditation to, to, to as this opportunity to completely let go and to gain insight into our perception that, you know, that when you come back to your, your normal life following a retreat, that, it's not that you're returning back to the real world is that you're only returning back to your habits mm-hmm. and that if we actually pay attention that this you know you, you don't need to be it's not that reality becomes different in a temple or, or, or on a, in a meditation center that the only thing is whether we're whether we're looking or not you know whether we're aware of what's here or what's not that this is always spectacular this is always i am um, i I get, I often get people coming to me to talk about spirituality, and I actually feel really uncomfortable talking about spirituality because to me the world doesn't that world doesn't really make much sense anymore. Because it it, it tends to suggest that there's something that isn't that. Yeah, and to me this is all incredible. You know that that my toilet is for me just as incredible as 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 a, a temple. That everything, every single thing is the same amazing quality. That it doesn't matter what it is. If we if we open our eyes to how inc- that it, it's, it's experience itself that's incredible, not the content of experience. 
We keep on getting obsessed with the content of our experience. When that's not the answer, it's it's waking up to the experience. The fact that it's experience itself that's miraculous. It's, it's, it's experience itself that will give us what we're looking for. And it is. And and I think, you know, when I when I read it, um, you know, that Vietnamese monk, Thai? Oh, Thay Mahan, yeah. Yes. I mean, he talks about how, you know, there's peace in every step. And I think what yes. he means is when you're being present, because sometimes, we, you know, we don't, we're not present to even our own breath, right? No, no. We, we don't. We're not observing that we're breathing at the moment we're breathing or when we're walking. So we're walking around and we're not present to it. So he's saying, you know, if we're present to it, each step is like going home because you'll be there, right? Because, you know, when your foot touches the ground, you feel the ground and you feel your leg lifting up again, that you're present, you're in that moment. And so... I think the meditation really is those moments building up. Like, so each moment you start over again. Yes. And and to join the dots and to realize that there's nothing special about walking. There's nothing special about meditating that anytime you're aware, we're aware of how incredible all this is that we're, so this is actually all about appreciation. Yes, yes. Learning to appreciate what's here. And and when we, it's so, you know, I keep on using this word astounding, but I can't think of a different word how people can see this, how I couldn't see it. That this is all absolutely incredible. It's all mind-boggling. It's all everything. Every, every single thing is mind-boggling. And the fact that we're not paying attention to it, that's what's insane. <laughs> I agree with you. And, like, you know, we were earlier... all born. Like, so I, I was born like, like 50, 53 years ago. And apparently, apparently this all just arrived. All of this, all of this thing I experienced as life just boom, it was all here, apparently. And, yeah. and to me, that's absolutely astounding. Yeah. And I don't know how could anyone ever take that for granted. Now, obviously, I did for a long time. But to me, I don't understand how that was even possible. Yeah. Like, how can people not see how astounding this is? That it, this is just mad. It's it's mental. It's it's uh, beyond all comprehension. And yet we walk around kind of thinking we understand it and that we understand ourselves and we understand what's going on. And and I, I kind of mentioned that uh, thing about you know my fear of dying. Yeah. One of the saddest things that that I I realized that it's often the most negative people, the ones most. In, who are who are least enjoying life? Who are often the ones that are most worried about dying? I mean, there's something incredibly sad about that. It's like, and, and that certainly would apply to me. I was basically saying to myself, "My life is miserable. I hope it never ends." <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Um, the way Ty explains death is just a transition, right? Sure. So he says. Sure. You know, it's just like when you look at a flower, you're actually looking at the rain, the wind, the sun. It's all interconnected. Uh, and so yes. even when we're, we die, we, we don't disappear. We just well, transform so, into something else. So, so the, way, the way I would, I would describe this, see, this is waking up to... To, to, you know, for me, it was waking up to the, to, 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 to this relationship with, with life where I realized that I am the experience. And experience doesn't die. Experience, because, I mean, there would be, see, the only, the only way that I could, it, it would be a bit arrogant for me to believe that I was the only experience. That would be solipsism. I have to believe believe that. And when I actually investigated my experience is that the thing I was calling the, the, the Paul in the experience was like a character in a dream. And that, yeah, experience doesn't die. Characters in dreams die. 
And when you start to identify with the experience, you, you know, that becomes undeniable. Yeah. And, you know, from, from my tradition, and I don't know what the tradition in Thailand is, yeah, know, what is the beliefs it's, it's, of your, your wife and her family. So but, here, here in Thailand is Theravada Buddhism. Oh is, oh, is it? Yes. Oh, so then that's good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, in, in my culture, indigenous culture, I'm a Dene Slusene from northern Alberta. Um, uh-huh. We, you know, my brother will often, he'll text me and he'll say, so-and-so has, has gone into the spirit, spirit world. And, sure. you know, he knows that I will get sad if I hear somebody we, we loved has passed on. And then he'll say, mm-hmm. but, you know, when they, just before they, they went into the spirit world, save they were sick, he says, all the ancestors had a meeting about them and were deciding, you know, whether or not the person would continue to live or be admitted into the spirit world. And so he says, you know, if they come back, if they come out of that coma or whatever illness, that means it wasn't their time. And if they, and if they do pass, then their ancestors, our ancestors will be accepting them into, into this big circle of all our other ancestors. So it would be kind of like a big party they would have. And, you know, it always makes me feel a little bit better, but I think it's because like you, I was raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. And I think even now some of our indigenous culture is so intertwined with the Catholic religion that we haven't been able to purse and untangle what is truly indigenous and what is influenced by the church and so often we mix the two um but i don't know in thailand like what was the influence of of religion like other than buddhism so so here here in thailand so before Buddhism came, animism would have been the prevailing thing. But I think animism is prevailing thing everywhere in the planet until we kind of found organized religion. So animism as in kind of seeing, uh, you know, everything is alive. Yes. Yeah. And you kind of say animism is the natural, is the natural, you know, religion of, of babies. Yes. You see everything is alive. And we kind of go out of that. But it's sort of so here in Thailand. It's, it's it's even today. There's a mix of animism and Buddhism. That um, there have been other religions here, but they've never really taken off. Like the population of Thailand, I think, is still something like ninety six percent Buddhist. And there's been a, a lot of you know missionary work here and stuff like that to change that. But it's never really you know they're quite comfortable with their own you know religion and stuff. Mm. But I mean, for most people, and for most Buddhists, and I think for most people in general, their religion is more a cultural thing than a, a spiritual thing. You know, a lot of people they don't really have the, the time or energy for spirituality. We want to use that word. Yeah. Well, how would you define spirituality as you, as it retains to you? Well, I mean, as I was saying, I, I don't anymore. To me, yeah, that's what I, I was I don't thinking. Even, you know, I don't because to, to me. To, to me, see, when you use words like that, you're, we're creating the sense that there's something that, that's not that. Right. And to me, this is all, so it kind of cheapens it. To me, this is all one incredible, everything's incredible. And it's to wake up that everything is incredible, not just special things. That um, it's not just something that happens once a week when you go to a special room that every every single moment has that same quality, no matter what you're doing. That every, every, everything is that quality. And, 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 it's, and it's, it's waking up to that. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, when, when we view life as 
you know, like moment to moment and just mm. the, the sheer, like, I think it's, you know, the, the odds against of, you know, a person being born, right. Even just being born is a, yeah. a pretty awesome thing because, you know, when you're looking at just the, the egg being fertilized, it's almost like, you know, what are the chances of that happening sure. and then to create Paul out of that, right? You know, the character. I, I, I think it's absolutely incredible. But yeah. and, and that's not even but that it wasn't even my experience. Yeah. In in the sense that I don't I don't I've no I've no experience of being born. I've experienced of like when I was maybe about four or five that I would it was like it would come in and out of reality. Yeah. Like this would appear and disappear. That really like that, so that even that idea about about being born, that's something I, I heard from other people, you know, that, that they tell me about Paul being born, that I didn't. And now I think some people can actually apparently have memories of, you know, very, very, being very, very young. But I, I didn't. So when I actually look at my experience, I can't even say that I was born, you know, from my own experience. All that happened is one day disappeared, disappeared this all appeared and it keeps on appearing like a recurring dream <laughs> that, that, that I loved dearly. But I also know that uh, you know you can have other dreams and, and love them just as dearly. That you can have these experiences where you know where you can seem to be. And you know, I've had experiences as well like in meditation and in dreaming where I'm someone completely different, and it still feels absolutely like me. Mm. That I can have a different, you know, even a different sex. That I can have a different, a different, completely different story. And are you, you know, it's it's tempting to kind of say that these are past lives. I don't like to go there. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know about that. But I do know they can certainly appear just as real as this. And that really undermines everything in a good way. That, you know, to me, to me, I, 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 I my, my favorite stance on everything is I don't know. Because that to me, where the, the real joy and the real freedom comes from, from that, I don't know. And it's like, for me, the universe applauds every time I say I don't know. <laughs> I think the universe likes us to be humble. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think that, I mean, this is such, such a heavy, heavy topic. <laughs> oh, God, yes. <laughs> you know, it's very deep because... A lot, I don't know, a lot of people listening to this will say, oh, what the hell are they talking about? Yes. But it really is the essence of life. Yeah. And I think most, you know, like when, you know, when you get to the heart of most religions, it's, it's often recognized. So I know, I mean, like you, I grew up as a Catholic. And that the idea of Catholic, at the center of it was this huge mystery that humans couldn't understand. Yeah. And I think... For me, that that's the best place to stop, you know. With that, I don't know. I don't. This is a this is an incredible mystery, and that it's 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 there. It's like even the Buddha. You know, the Buddha would talk about. You know, he he he'd say, look at all the leaves in the forest, and he'd pick up a handful of leaves and say, I just talk about these handful of leaves. That there's something so much bigger than our our understanding. And that our understanding, when we don't realize that, our, our understanding becomes like a prison. Yeah, I. it's really, um, I mean, when I'm just going to kind of circle back to addiction. Sure. When, when you're counseling, you know, people that are in recovery. Um, and, you know, I had a brother that, that, was really deep into his addiction um, and he was forever trying to get sober and you yeah. know the latter part of his life he would just he called it tapering but he was often just really kind of just on the verge of being drunk you know yes but he kept it there because he felt that if he would stop he would go into you know, he could have a heart attack or a stroke. So he always kept sure. drinking a little bit. And there are people around that 
just saw him as, as uh, that he couldn't be helped, you know, and I often hear people say things like, well, if he really wanted to stop drinking, he'd stop drinking. But I don't ascribe to that because at some point you lose your, your will of choice, sure. right? Sure. Because you're, you're, um, your brain isn't working well, your body's not working well, it's not in, in top shape, and yes. you don't have the same choices as a person that is healthy, if yes. their body is healthy, and their mind is healthy. So, you know, to say somebody wants, if they wanted to stop, they could, the question should just be, um, of course, they don't want to be that way, right? Yes, of course, sure. I, I look, you know, I think all of us, especially those of us who are suffering, I think the most important first stop step is 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 to not hate ourselves, that and to not blame ourselves. And through that, through that kind of letting go, through the start of that letting go, some of us may be able to, to you know, maybe most of us will be able to escape an addiction. But we're, but it's like going the opposite way, hating ourselves and feeling bad and feeling shame. It's like that only pushes us further into that. That, you know, and telling people, oh, you know, it's your fault that you're doing that, that you're deliberately, you know, why don't you just change? That mm -hmm. if we take that on board, it's like it, it's intensifying everything. That the only real way out is through letting go, is through, is true. it's like we're being hypnotized and we need to, to start becoming unhypnotized, we need to like realize that, to realize I cannot trust what my mind is telling me. And particularly all of this negative stuff that's telling me. Because I remember at the end of my own addiction, I really believe that that's what the best I could do. And I had to no longer believe that. And 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 some people, because of the nature of their journey, and I don't understand anyone's journey, you know. So, so some people, their journey, it appears that it will it won't involve necessarily escaping addiction. And 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 you know, and 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 this is where maybe you know harm reduction and stuff like that may be of more benefit. Well, it certainly protects the, I think with harm reduction, it, it protects the person, right? So that they don't sure. go into, you know. And we certainly uh, shouldn't be penalizing them because they don't feel able to stop. That, that yes. Actually, har harm reduction can be a step towards yes. eventually quitting. Because there can be this idea of kind of penalizing them for not getting it. Yes, and I'm not sure if that, you know, maybe perhaps in, in, in some cases, but I think in a lot of cases, you know, there. I, I I remember meeting people. I I was briefly on the streets and I kind of walked with the homeless and I, I met plenty of kind of particularly older people who got no interest in ever stopping. Yeah. And and I I, I think they we kind of owe it to, to to take care of those people as best we can and to support them as best we can. Not to not to penalize them for that. Yeah, well, I think with everybody, you know, we as humans, what we really need, and what we're we're seeking is to be seen and recognized, right? Sure. And I and I believe you know people. I mean, my brother, uh, he wasn't homeless, but he he used to panhandle, you yeah. know, and. Uh, mostly to buy booze. <laughs> but, you know, when I think about him asking for money and, and being turned away or not being seen, it really hurt me just to know that people didn't want to see him, you know, weren't looking at him and just yes. thought he was a drunk on the street. And, you know, often, you know, we would, well, before the pandemic, when we were out, in the world and i would see a panhandler i would you know they'd come up to the car and ask for change i often would ask them their name first and then i would give them whatever money change that i had 
and I'd give it to them. I'd mention, I'd call them by their name and give them the change because a lot of times, you know, people are, are not seeing them. They're not recognizing them. They're not calling them by their name. And I think more than just the few bits of change that I was giving them, just the recognition that I, somebody saw them and called them by their name. Absolutely. Gave them. One of the things, and and, and maybe we can finish here. One of the things I kind of really, and this is what I like, you know, maybe about the the Thai attitude towards uh, generosity that I, I think, you know, especially where I grew up and when I was growing up, there was this idea that, that you know when you help somebody that that person has i don't know somehow some obligation to you or something that you know that and and, and it kind of leads to this idea well, i'm not going to give money to that person they'll just spend it on drugs yeah and so we don't we don't ever help but here in thailand it's more a sense that actually when you practice generosity that's for your benefit yeah and it's not your concern what the person does with it yes that it's all about you practicing generosity not yeah. not to be, um, you know, that you suddenly become their judge and caretaker. Yeah. It's about I, you, that you're simply practicing generosity. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I had a shift in my perception and it shifted my relationship with my mother because my mother used to, you know, ask me for money and I... I kind of resented giving her any money because I knew she was giving it to my brothers. But when I had this change in perspective, I realized that when I gave her money, it was no longer mine. And so it didn't matter. So it didn't matter to me what she did with it. And if it made her happy for the time that I gave it to her and then she gave it to my brother, then it didn't matter. Like it was once it left my hand and into her hand, it was her money. And I had yes. no, no other tie to it other than I knew that it made her happy at, at that moment, you know? Sure. So it's, it's, um, it's how we relate to people and our expectations of them, you know, because, Absolutely. and you're right, because if you're providing you know, a generous offering to someone, it should come with no expectations of what they should do it, right? Because I'll, you know, I hear people, you know, giving money change to some person on the street and say, well, buy yourself food with this. Don't, don't be spending it on liquor. Thanks, mom. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, we don't need to be doing that, you know, they can spend it on whatever it is they want, because that's their journey. Yes. And they don't need us telling, putting some boundaries on the money that we've given them. It yeah. just seems ridiculous to me. Sure. But so I'm just before we wrap up, I know you have a son and I always want to end in a positive way. So if you had three things that like or three wishes that you would want for your son and your son is how old now is he 10 he's 15 he's 15 15 oh my god it's so it's amazing how time goes i know tell me about it tell me about it yeah (laughs) Yeah. so what would you want for your son um just three things that would you feel that would make his life um give him the opportunities so what, what, one thing would be to realize that peace comes from the way we relate to life, not from controlling the content of life. Mm-hmm. That, it, it, that it's not the, it's not achieving things or or um, you know making money or any or finding the right relationship that's going to necessarily fix us. The second thing is to always always try to be friendly. That that was a that that was a that, that was kind of something that I didn't do. I, I used to kind of go out of my way to antagonize people, mm-hmm. but you know, just just always go for friendliness. And 
and a third thing, and maybe the most important thing, is to just is 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 for would be for him to really realize how incredible it is to be alive. You know, to kind of wake up to how incredible this is. Yeah. But he, my, my son, my son does great. He's he's a lovely kid, so I'm uh, quietly confident that he'll do okay. Yeah, yeah. So does he run with you? He does. Yeah. He, he's even even yesterday morning he actually went running by himself. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't force them. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's important, especially at at you know his age. Sure, right, you yeah. want him to find his way himself, right? Yeah, and it's kind of difficult. I don't. I mean, I don't necessarily understand. Um, you know, I you know, over the last few years, particularly with COVID and with lockdowns, I mean, kids seem to spend a hell of a lot more time online. Yes. And it's easy for me to become very judgmental about that and very concerned about that. But I, I kind of think, you know, as I, I used to get chased out of the house for reading too much. <laughs> you know, that, that and my, you know, I'm sure my, 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 my dad used to be concerned that reading too much might rot my brain or something. And, and I don't think that happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know my mom was like that, too. I mean, I grew up in a house of 10 brothers. Wow. And my brothers, all because they were all older than me, they were reading lots of stuff. So we had a lot of books. But my mom saw reading as taking away from doing things around the house, you know, sure. like yeah. cutting wood. And of course, there's something to that. But, yeah. You know. Yeah. But it's also, you know, it's it's allowing you to travel without leaving home. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean... And I think the pandemic has created, it opened up a new paradigm of how we look at life. Whereas, you know, I mean, look at us. I'm talking to you from Ottawa, Canada. You're in Thailand. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. it's just really awesome that. Oh, it's incredible. That life has all these different things. And who knows what's going to happen in, you know, 30 years, 40 years, what life is going to look like. Absolutely. Um, but right now, I mean, there's lots of incredible, phenomenal things that are happening every day. People are yes. doing amazing things out in the world. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm really so pleased that you accepted my invitation to. Oh, I'm very, I'm very honored to, to, to be asked. Thanks, Angelina. Yeah. And it's, it was really great having this conversation, you know, on Buddhism, on life and death, on dream life <laughs> and yes. and we just covered, the, we, we, we covered a lot we did and just the incredible um how incredible it is to be alive in this time absolutely because it absolutely. it really is incredible and i and i can i hear that in your voice i can feel it and yeah it's uh, it's it's quite remarkable i feel so i think that we can wrap up. Is there any last few think last points you want to say or bring up? I think I think we probably covered it all for now. Yeah, I think we have. I think we have. I think well, Annie might, might might ruin it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, we'll leave well enough alone. <laughs> yes, yeah, if, if only I'd stop there. Yes, yeah. Well, Paul, it's been a real delight. Thanks a million. All right. Thank you. Have a great evening. All right. Have a great day. Sure, well, see you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.